0: Feel turning your Bibles to Isaiah chapter eleven with me. Isaiah chapter eleven. We'll pick up this morning where we left off several weeks ago. Hope you guys are having a great summer. Buying a lot of lemonade from kids selling it on the side of the road. You know, my there's some kids, including mine, that have got a lemonade stand on Hillbrook. You can come on by two or three days a week, invest in the Milton family, buy some lemonade. And I was wondering, like, what's their trick? Because at one point there were two or three cars lined up, and I'm thinking, whenever do you see two or three cars lined up to buy lemonade from kids? So I went out and I inspected their sign, and I thought, oh, that's it. On their sign, it says, lemonade, this is how much it costs. And then it's got a little logo on the side, and it says, We did not stir it with our hands. (laughs) And I thought, well, no wonder everybody's stopping by. So it's clean lemonade. And any children here who get an idea that you want to start a lemonade stand, I would suggest that too. Don't stir it with your hands and let everybody know that you don't stir it with your hands. And your profit will be doubled. Um, Isaiah chapter 11 I want to, I need to just back up so that I can give you some information um, that helps you understand where we are today. And Isaiah 6 is, is where I want to back up to. In Isaiah 6, you know, he has the vision that all true prophets of the Old Testament had that set them apart, hey girls, as prophets. And... In that vision, God says, who will go for me? And, of course, he says, here am I, send me. And he does. He goes. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And then what we see in chapter 7 is he goes down to call Israel to covenant faithfulness, doesn't he? And he goes to King Ahaz, who is a very wicked man who is offering his own children to the gods of the nations. And Ahaz is preparing Jerusalem for a battle, essentially, with Syria and Israel. And there he is, he's checking the water supply out in front of the city, and Isaiah comes to him, and Isaiah says something like this, Ask anything of God as high as heaven and as deep as Sheol, and he'll give it to you so that you may believe and trust in the Lord. And King Ahaz says, No, I'll not put the Lord to the test. And then God says, I will give you a sign. Behold, A virgin shall be with child, and his name will be Emmanuel. In other words, I will give you a sign to believe, and that you can trust me. There'll be a virgin, and this virgin will have a child, and that child will be Emmanuel, which literally means God with us. Okay? Fast forward to chapter 9. He picks up the same theme in verse 6, and he says, To us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So this child that I've just told you about, he will be Mighty God. He will be the king from David's throne and of his government, the increase. In other words, the increase of God's kingdom will never end. Then we come to chapter 10, which Caleb preached about, and what we see is he describes Assyria, the great enemy, and Judah, the nation that Isaiah is prophesying, as forests. And God says he will cut them down so there's nothing but stumps left. Now we come to chapter 11. And what he says is, out of those stumps, out of the stump of Jesse, which is David's father, right? So out of the family of David, Will come a new shoot, a single shoot, and this shoot will bear much fruit. In other words, he's telling us more about this child, the Messiah, who he is, where he will come from. The Messiah King, but this time the Messiah's role is not just saving man. He goes on here in chapter 11 and talks about he will restore all of creation. In other words, the work of the Messiah will be as deep and as wide and as high as the work of sin in our world. It will not just be man that's born again. It will be creation that's born again through the work of this king. So let's just read Isaiah chapter 11, and we'll just go 1 to 9. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Let's just pray for our time. Father, we thank you so much for the pictures in your word of the Messiah, the child, mighty God, the Prince of Peace, his first coming. And now we begin to see a taste of his second coming, Lord. And he will restore all things, oh God. Lord, I pray right now that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear the Messiah Christ, our Savior speaking to us, Lord, calling us, Father, encouraging us, Lord, through His Word. Let Your Holy Spirit glorify Your name and give clarity to this text, O God, so that when we leave here today, our desire would be to worship this week. Our hearts would be refreshed and Your name would be honored, Lord. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Did you notice those last words? And the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And, you know, when I read that, I I was thinking, well, how will knowledge bring the wolf to lie down with the lamb? Do you see that? That's what he's describing what's going to happen. And it's going to happen through the knowledge of God. And so how does that happen? Well, we need to learn a few things about knowledge from a man like John Frame. And he says three things you need to know about knowledge. First, type of knowledge is about facts. So, um, you might know that the earth is filled with water in many places, and 96.5% of that water is in the ocean. That's a knowledge, isn't it? It's a type of knowledge. It's knowledge about a fact. And there's a second type of knowledge. And that's a knowledge of skills. So my children have a knowledge of how to make lemonade without their hands. That's a real skill that a lot of children don't have. That's a joke. You can laugh at that. I'm sure your children know how to do that quite well, too. And then there's a third type of knowledge. It's not just skills, and it's not just facts. It's a personal knowledge. It's a knowledge of a person, isn't it? You you know your wife, or you know your brother, you know your sister. There's something intimate. There's a relational knowledge, isn't there? You see, you come to know a person differently than you come to know a fishing lake, right? And the knowing of God is unique because God is unique in Himself. The Scriptures use the words knowledge of God and obedience to God almost simultaneously, Those two are together. So when someone knows God in Christ, they know Him as Lord and His friend relationally. And in that relationship, obedience is how we act in that relationship. So to examine, if someone knows Christ, we don't give him an exam of his knowledge of the Bible or his skills in evangelism, do we? Rather, we examine his life. Because a saving relational knowledge of Christ always produces a life change in obedience. Okay, Rusty, are you saying perfection? No. Oftentimes that obedience is simply an obedience to repent when we do sin, isn't it? Okay, Isaiah 11 now. From the family of David will come a new shoot, a new tree. But unlike the old tree, this one will bear much fruit. What fruit? He will restore the whole of creation. Through judgment and rebirth, Christ's redemption will be as great as the fall was. He will judge sin and wickedness and return the world to an unpolluted state. He will dwell with man on earth. And seeing Him will be what transforms all of creation. You see, it's not just us that will be reborn. It's creation. It's everything that will be reborn so that we actually see the lion and the lamb laying down together, dwelling together fearlessly. Okay? You say, Rusty, great. I get it. We're living between Isaiah 9, the mighty king coming, and Isaiah 11, the mighty king coming again, the second coming of Jesus. Emmanuel has come, and he's coming again. I get that. So this gives me some hope, right? You're telling me, okay, great, the the lion will lay down with the lamb when Jesus comes again. But it also affects your life now. You see, it reveals the knowledge of God to you. Listen, God doesn't just cast aside or abandon what he's made because of sin. He restores what he's made. God is a restorer. And for us as a church and as His people, it means we do the same now in this life. The church is in the business of restoring all things through the power of Christ. We are called to bring the knowledge of God to bear on all aspects of culture. To people, yes, and they're born again as they believe, and they come into a relational knowledge of Christ, but all aspects of culture... The church is to bring the knowledge of who God is and truth to bear and to restore and to see it rebirthed because that's God's heart. So here's the main idea today. We're called to bring the knowledge of God to bear on culture so that through the power of the Spirit, it'll be reborn. It'll be reborn. Okay, there's two things we want to see here. He says that this branch that comes up from from the stump of Jesse or David, will bear fruit. And then he tells us two of those fruits here. First is this. The fruits of the king's first coming. Let's talk about that. The fruits of the king's first coming. Now, he starts with the Holy Spirit here. And do you remember David when David was a boy? And you remember how Samuel comes... God tells Samuel, anoint the king and fill a horn with oil and go to Jesse's house. You Remember that story? And how Jesse pulls out all of his sons and God tells him, no, this is not, none of these are the king. Is there another? Of course, they go and get David. They pull him down from the mountains as he's been shepherding. And God says, this is the one, anoint him with oil. Now, I want to read to you what it says here. Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And when he did, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Now look at verse 2 with me in your Bibles. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Isaiah is saying, this king will be like his father David. He will be anointed with the Holy Spirit. In fact, it will not come and go, it will rest upon him. That's why John the Baptist says this in John one hundred thirty three, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is the Son of God. So when the Holy Spirit comes on Jesus in Luke chapter three, and God says this is my son, it is a public proclamation that this is is the shoot of Jesse. Do you see that? This is the one that will be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the Messiah. This is Emmanuel. Now, he mentions some of the gifts of the Spirit, doesn't he? Wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. And so what we see is the king will be different. He comes from small beginnings. Not a royal pomp and pageantry, Not wealth and and great circumstances. All the wealth of Judah's been cut down. This king would come from a stump, which means the humblest of beginnings he'll come from. Now, he's full of the Spirit, of course. And notice this. He gives us one quality twice. Look there in your Bibles. Verse 3. He delights in the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He will not delight in having lots of wives or military conquests or wealth, but his greatest joy will be in the fear of God. What does that mean? Does that mean he's afraid of God and he enjoys being afraid of God? Well, literally in the Hebrew, it means the fear of God is fragrance to him. The fear of God smells real good to him. It means the king has utter reverence and awe for God's will to be done. The Father's will is his greatest delight and joy. Let me explain. In the Iron Age, there was a group called the Gauls. Maybe you've heard of them. And they controlled Germany and France. And one time, a group of Gauls went into Italy and they tasted what they called the sweet wine of the vine of Italy. They could never be satisfied until they conquered the country where it grew. They wanted it because of how much delight they had when they tasted it. That which we delight in, we are willing to suffer to have. For Christ, His greatest joy and delight was doing what His Father wanted. Because obedience brings intimacy with God, and intimacy with God is where joy is found. The greatest joy is found in obeying God. There is no joy in relationship with God when we are not close to Him in communion. And so what he's saying is, my greatest delight is in the fear of the Lord, which means to do the will of God, because when I do that, I'm close to Him, and intimacy with Him is where true delight and joy is found. Distance from him is where sadness and sorrow comes in. And so he's saying, I delight to be close to him to do his will. Because that's where joy is found. Now notice verse 3 and 4. How he talks about that affecting how he leads. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity For the meek of the earth, he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Listen, because the Messiah's delight is in the will of God, he treats people with righteousness and justice. He does not delight in what he sees or what he hears. He's not in awe of man, but he's in awe of God. He is not controlled by fear of not doing the will of man. He is utterly controlled by fear of not doing the will of his Father in heaven. And notice how he describes it. The poor and the meek. Poor are people who have been humbled to their knees by their misfortunes in this world. The meek are people who have inwardly, spiritually been humbled because of the sin in their heart. And he's saying this king will care in righteousness and justice justice for those who are spiritually bankrupt and those who are poor in physically and material things bankrupt. Now notice lastly there, how does he care for the poor and the meek? Well, he is righteous towards their oppressors. His word is a rod that strikes the sin of the world with rebuke and a call for Repentance. In other words, His very word that He speaks, which we have, is a call for repentance, justice, and righteousness. And notice eternally, it will be the words of His mouth that pass eternal judgment and destruction upon the wicked. Now, how does that, how does that change how you see the poor and the meek? I want to show, tell you just a little something from Deuteronomy 26. In Deuteronomy 26, God commands Israel after their grape harvest, and they've got all this fruit. He tells them, I want you to tithe on that, right? But I don't want you to tithe on what's on the bottom of the barrel. I want you to tithe your first fruits. I want you to tithe your very best. And I want you to read to you who to give it to, he says. Give it to the Levites. That's the priest who had no land. Give it to the sojourners. That's people who had no home. They're just traveling through. Give it to the fatherless and to the widow so that when they come to our towns, they can eat and they can be filled. And he concludes with this. God commands you to do this, now notice this, with all your heart and with all your soul. God wants us to care for the poor and the meek, not just out of some sense of duty, Not because we have to, but to give them our best, give them the first fruits, not the bottom of the barrel. And he tells us to do this with all of our heart and with all of our soul. Not begrudgingly, not with disdain, not with disappointment, but because this delights God. And we are to do the same. Now, for the believer, you have the spirit that gives you ability. We have God's clear will and his word And for us, a delight in God's will means to care for the poor and the meek. The meek are the people who are spiritually broken. We give the gospel to them so that they can be saved. But the poor are people who are physically broken. And we have an obligation to care for them with all of our heart and all of our soul because this is what delights God. In the same way... God said to do My will with all your heart because I brought you out of slavery, He tells them, into a land of milk and honey. So in other words, He tells Israel, do this because I brought you out of the land of slavery. You were slaves and now you're in the land of milk and honey. In other words, because of the grace I've shown to you. My friends, that is the gospel to us, isn't it? Were we not all slaves in sin before Christ? Can somebody say hallelujah or amen? (laughs) Yes, we were. And Christ comes to us with His grace, doesn't He? And saves us completely from first to last and brings us into salvation that flows with milk and honey. The righteousness of Christ given to you. And He says, because of what I've done for you, with all your heart, with all your soul, care for the poor. Care for the meek, for this is the delight of the Lord. And that applies to us as well. That's the Messiah's heart. Now let's move then from the fruits of the king's first coming to the fruits of his second coming. So verses 6 to 9, I'll just read that once more. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together Notice he strikes the earth with his words in verse 4. And I want to read you a couple New Testament verses that talk about that. Second Thessalonians 2, eight, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Revelations 21.5 and 8 Behold, I am making all things new. That's what we're talking about. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, their portion will be in the lake of of fire that burns with sulfur in the second death. When Christ comes again, he will judge the world and also make all things new through his word. And what we have here is a glimpse of what that will look like. It's what Isaiah talks about in chapter 66, the new heavens and the new earth. Verse 9, how will it be done? For the earth shall be full, the knowledge of the Lord as the waters covers the sea. This is the new earth. After Christ has judged all things, what was polluted, crippled, dirtied by darkness and sin will be restored by a knowledge of who God is, His glory. Let me explain. Revelation 21. And God Himself will be amongst them. Okay, Rusty, how does the knowledge of God again restore all things? How are you saved? Well... I didn't know Christ. I knew Christ. You didn't have eyes to see and know who He was, His glory, a knowledge of Him by the work of the Holy Spirit. You had a knowledge of His glory. You knew that He was the Savior. He was the Son of God. He was the Messiah. And you had faith in Him. In other words, it was a saving knowledge of Christ which called you you to be born again. It was Christ's glory, His greatness, that you beheld and you believed. What this is saying in eternity it's the same thing. What will transform everything? It's when Christ comes again on earth and is his glory, his greatness, a knowledge of who he is. And as it's seen in the earth, it will transform everything. Okay, Rusty, where in the world does that come from? 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears... We shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. When Christ comes again in the new heavens and new earth, you will see Him as He is. In other words, you will have a physical knowledge of who He is, His glory, and that is what will transform you and the entire earth. Remember the beginning of the story. Man rejects the knowledge of God in the Garden of Eden, which brought a curse upon man and creation so that now, all things are not the way they're supposed to be. They're broken, aren't they? The end of the story is Christ, the hero, the Savior, the promised shoot of Jesse, who would bear fruit, a total restoration of the knowledge of God to man and creation. In other words, the story will end how it began. With God walking with man, and with man and creation knowing God. And the Messiah will do that. Last thing. Last thing. Verses 6 to 8. Creation restored by the Prince of Peace. What we see here is the enemies dwelling together. Old hostility gone. Fear is gone. The wolf, the leopard, and the lion are at peace with the lamb, the young goat, and the calf. And a child too inexperienced to lead wild animals or livestock... Is perfectly safe leading them or even playing over a poisonous snake's hole. That'll be the work of Christ in eternity. The earth is not just where we live now and will be destroyed, but it is our eternal home. And the same way you've experienced a rebirth through knowing Jesus personally, the earth and all of creation will experience a rebirth through Christ's coming physically. The knowledge of Christ, the knowledge of God will cover the earth like the waters do the sea. How do we think and live this? How do we take this from our heads to our heart? And we'll finish with just a few last thoughts. This does more than just give us a hope for the future. It does more than just say, okay, my life is rough now. It won't be rough one day. But it tells us what the role of the church should be in culture now. God doesn't abandon what he has made because of sin. Sin is not the final victor. He restores it. He redeems it. He rebirths it. The church and God's people are not to just abandon and run from the effects of sin in the world. We are to restore our world with truth and the power of the gospel and the knowledge of God. The answer is always here. We bring the knowledge of God to bear upon our world. That's how the world will be transformed. What do I mean? Well, your marriage. We don't quit because it's hard and you're married to a sinful person who mixes lemonade with their hands. We bring the knowledge of God to bear upon our marriage and we see it transformed. Politics, we don't cast it aside because it's corrupt and people go to jail. We get involved in it and we bring the knowledge of God and His truth to bear upon government to see it rebirthed and changed. The arts, we don't pull away from the arts because modern art tells us there is no truth, it's all interpretative. No, we engage the arts with beauty and the knowledge of God. Movies, we don't cast aside and say we're done with films or filmmaking because there's so much rubbish out there. No, we get in there and we say we're going to make films that are redemptive and reflect the knowledge of God. So in other words, in every way we bring the gospel and the knowledge to bear on not just our lives, but our world. Al Walter says, In the name of Christ, distortion must be opposed everywhere, in the kitchen and in the bedroom." In the city councils and corporate boardrooms. On the stage and in the air. In the classroom and in the workshop. Everywhere creation calls for the honoring of God's standard. Last bet. How are you going to do this? That's a big task. Wherever you are, how are you going to do this? Well, it's only when you yourself are being transformed under a steady pursuit of knowing God more. The more your life is being transformed by knowing Christ, the person to do His will, the more the fear of God will be your delight to do His will, to treat the poor and meek with righteousness, to walk in the power of the Spirit, and to be the light of Christ in the darkest of places. How are you going to do that? It is through growing in an intimate, relational knowing of Jesus Christ that then you can go in the world and be the salt and life. Not through you, through the power of Christ working through you. Amen. Father, I just praise you right now and I thank you that, Lord, I thank you we see your heart here. Thank you, God. You don't just burn up the world and cast it aside and and we go up to heaven and dwell like angels on a cloud forever. That's not the story, Lord. Thank you, Father, that you sent the hero, the Messiah, the Savior, Emmanuel, God with us, the Prince of Peace, who will come and restore everything that sin broke. Lord, all the effects of evil and the evil one, Lord, and yet the church is called to be part of that now, and you promise that the kingdom of God, the kingdom will increase until Christ comes back. Lord, help us to be brave in faith, and Lord, and wherever you have us planted in culture, Lord, through our own lives being transformed by the power of the gospel, spending much time with the Savior, Lord, that light, that truth, that knowledge would come to bear in a greater way in our marriage, in our parenting, in our workplace. God, we want to see rebirths in all these things for your glory. And yet we realize we need your power. In Jesus' name, amen.